Thanks for joining the Hague Mennonite Church podcast. We are a small and friendly congregation in Hague, Saskatchewan. Here you will find our weekly messages and we hope you will be encouraged and blessed. Let's get it started. When I walked in this morning, Mike said, so you got any fish to fry? And I didn't even have that in here this morning, but yeah, I got some fish. <laughs> so we started in this book of Acts on February 14th, and for about 10 Sundays, we've been working our way through this book, and in only 10 weeks, we're in ch- already in chapter 5. We are flying through this thing. <clears throat> And to get us started this morning, I want to get us up to speed on what's happened in those 10 weeks. This passage that we're looking at today is a turning point in the ministry of the apostles, and it's important to understand how we got here. So the story of Acts really kicks off on Pentecost, and the apostles are waiting in the upper room, just as they're instructed by Jesus, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they start speaking in tongues, and people that are in the temple courts hear them speaking, but they hear them speaking in their own language, and they're amazed and some think they're drunk. So Peter, in all his wisdom, decides to address the crowd. The other apostles must be sitting back and thinking, oh, brother, not Peter, anyone but Peter. But Peter, as usual, is guns a-blazing, full steam ahead, talk first, think later, and he starts with, hey, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. And the other apostles must be like, oh, brother, whose turn was it to watch him? But then Peter starts to preach, and he's quoting from the Old Testament. He throws a King David reference at him. He reminds the crowd of the resurrection of the Messiah. Peter has the crowd's total attention. And I can see Peter looking back at the other guys and going, hey, this is actually going pretty good in his amazement, just as everybody else's. He tells the crowd that they've killed Jesus, who's the author of life, and the crowd cries out, What shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. And just like that, 3,000 men join them. Then Peter and do hear about Peter and John entering the temple. And Peter heals the lame beggar. And Peter and John heal this man. And then they walk into the temple courts. And people see them. And they come running to them. And again, Peter addresses the crowd. And he's got this thing rolling. By the time he's done, he has 5,000 men following him. Peter and John have the attention of all the people in the temple courts, but they've also attracted the attention of the temple guard and the Sadducees. After all, they are in the temple. And they get arrested, and they get thrown in in jail. And next morning, they're dragged in front of the Sanhedrin to answer questions. Now, these are the same guys that question Jesus, right? And they ask Peter and John, by what power or by what name did you do this? This being the healing, the dude that's standing right beside them. And Peter answers, Jesus, whom you crucified. The Sanhedrin tells them not to speak about Jesus, and Peter responds with, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to, to God, you must judge. And the Sanhedrin doesn't know what to do with them. You see, they still have a missing Jesus, and now they have these two idiots to deal with, and they're scared of the crowd outside, and you'd be too. There's 5,000 guys waiting outside to find out what happened to Peter and John. So they give them a slap on the wrist, tell them no more Jesus, and they let them go. Peter and John are free, and they go back to tell everyone else what happened. And the apostles and their followers have everything in common, everything is going good, they're meeting in the temple courts, they're eating together in their homes, they have people selling their stuff to support each other, and they give us an example of this, 
as Joseph sells his land and gives the proceeds to the church, all of it, and they start calling him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He becomes a leader in the church. And he even gets his name in the Bible. Later in Acts, we see that he goes on the road with Paul. Yes, it's the same guy. And then we get this really, really bad story last week. I'm not going to lie. I was really glad Chad got that one. (laughs) Ananias and Sapphira, they see what Barnabas has done and how the leaders of the church reacted to his generosity. And they think, hey, we can do this too. We want to be leaders too. We want to get in our names in the Bible as well. And they get their names in the Bible, all right. They lie to God about what they gave. And at this point in the church, this new church startup, God's not going to allow any sin in his new community. And he strikes them both dead. And here we are today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 12. And I, I didn't title this sermon. Usually I, I uh, start with, I've entitled this sermon whatever, but I didn't entitle it today, so I'm not sure why, but I just didn't. But we're going to start with prayer, so join me in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the ability to still meet together. We thank you uh, for your word. We humbly come before you. Uh, We want to speak the word boldly, Lord. We want to be that church that uh, speaks truth. And we want to be here to declare your word, and we want to, at the end of the day, Lord, we want Jesus to be lifted up and that he would be the hero, Lord. We pray that you'd be with us this morning. And we just ask that this uh, service would be a blessing to you and everyone that's here, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to start in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders are regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Just so we're clear, the disciples are the larger group of followers. The apostles are the men that follow Jesus. So that's Peter, John, and the others that made up the 12. They are the apostles. They're the chosen ones that Jesus chose, and it's by their hands that they're performing these signs and wonders. Now Luke uses the word signs and wonders, which is an interesting choice of words, because if you look at Luke's word, his words he uses, they're familiar, and they're tied to Moses. And if we look at Deuteronomy 2, or sorry, Deuteronomy 34, 10 to 11, it says, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. It says, Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, meaning that he knew him personally. The apostles who knew Jesus face to face, they knew Jesus personally. Moses is doing signs and wonders. The apostles are doing signs and wonders. And it's an interesting comparison, but what does it mean? Well, it means that Moses and the apostles are God's chosen instruments. Through them, God's signs and wonders are being performed to glorify God and build his kingdom in different times and for different purposes. When God was working through Moses, God was building a nation of people to follow him. The signs and the wonders were either to put the fear of God into Pharaoh or to try and appease a complaining group of people wandering in the desert, but always to build his kingdom through this nation of people. And now God is working through the apostles. God is building this community, a community of people to follow him again, his one church. The signs and wonders put power behind the teaching to build his kingdom. You see, God's purpose for miracles or signs and wonders is always to build his kingdom. The last half of verse 12. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. So what is Solomon's portico? If your translation says Solomon's colonnade, that's okay, it's the same thing. 
Solomon's portico was an area on the east side of the Temple Mount near the court of the Gentiles. So the Temple Mount itself, this is the Temple Mount here, is about 36 acres. And to give you an idea how big this is, just the top of the Temple Mount, it's about, the CFL football field is about two acres. So you could fit 18 football fields on the top of the Temple Mount. I know we've talked about that before, but just to give you an idea how large this is, and I want to keep you, I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this passage. This picture, if you see the people here, is actually, Mark, you guys probably were there, that the Israel Museum, it's a scale model that's built of the temple in the days of Jesus. The Temple Mount is massive. In this image of Temple Mount, they've labeled it for us. This is the temple in the middle, right here. And then the court of the Gentiles is in here. And then Solomon's portico, or his porch, or his colonnade runs all the way along the outside. Just so you have an idea of what we're talking about. This image just shows us Jesus teaching in the portico and gives you an idea of what it would look like underneath the portico. And this image, you'd see the portico if you were listening to Jesus and sitting there, you're looking out in the court of the Gentiles towards the temple. This is what you would see. This is me and Shelley on the Temple Mount by one of two of the mosques that are currently on top of the Temple Mount. And this is me. As you can see, I'm very excited about wearing a dress on the Temple Mount. But when a man with a gun says you have to wear a dress, you wear a dress. So why would Luke include where, that they, where they would meet in the temple court? Well, it's likely that this is the apostles' teaching location. Why would they have a teaching location? Simple, so that people can find them. Remember, the Temple Mount is 36 acres. How else would you find anybody up there? Makes sense, right? You want to listen to them, you go to Solomon's portico. It's another example could be if you saw some dude wandering aimlessly around the top of the Temple Mount, and you ask him, can I help you? And he says, yeah, I'm looking for Rabbi Bob. And you say, Rabbi Bob, yeah, for sure. He's around the corner down the steps just outside of the gate. How do you know where Rabbi Bob is? Because he's there every day. Makes sense, right? Kind of, or it's kind of like in the 80s. Anybody remember the 80s? Remember going to the mall with your family? Some people are nodding, some people are going, no, I don't remember the 80s. Remember going to the mall with your family? There's no cell phones, right? So you have to have a meeting spot. You need to know where to find everybody when it's time to go home. And the spot, it's the same spot all the time, so no one gets confused. You can't change the spot. If you change the spot, you're going to be there till 9 o'clock. By the time everybody finds a new spot, and then by that time, I've been waiting four hours to go home. You kind of get it. It's the same, kind of the same thing. John 10, 23 and 24. And Jesus walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, so the Jews gathered around him. From reading this, it's very possible that this is where Jesus would teach as well. They maybe just kept the same spot so that all the Jesus followers knew where to go. And if we look at Acts 3, right after Peter heals the lame beggar, it says in verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the colonnade called Solomon's. This is their spot. The last half of verse 12 and 13. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. This can be a little bit hard to follow, but I'm going to do my best to explain. When Luke says they and them, there seems to be some debate about who he's talking about. 
You see, they, in verse 12, could be referring to all believers, and them, in verse 13, could be the whole church. And then it would read, and all believers were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest of them dared join the church, but the people held them in high esteem. But it's more likely where it says they were all, in verse 12, they meant the apostles. And them, in verse 13, also means the apostles. And then it would read, and the apostles were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest of them dared join the apostles, but the people held them in high esteem. If you look at the Greek grammar, it allows for either explanation. However, from what I looked at, there's more support for the second example. I think it's probably because the second example shows the authority and the incredible power and the signs and wonders being done through the apostles. Remember what happened in last week's story. Ananias and Sapphira, they're part of this group of followers. They're part of the believers. They're part of these disciples. And they lie to God about their donation. And they drop dead. Right in front of Peter. Right in front of everyone. So this is not a secret. So it makes sense that the people are scared to join them. They're scared of the apostles' authority. The other thing to consider when talking about why none of the rest of them dared join them, the rest of them also know what's happening between the Jewish leadership in the Sanhedrin and the apostles. Jesus was killed by these people, and he's now missing, and Peter and John were just arrested by this same leadership. Maybe none of the rest are looking at this situation, weighing their options and thinking, should I put myself in harm's way? I think maybe I'm just gonna hang back. See, if anybody else gets arrested, see if anybody else drops dead before I commit to this thing. And the rest of them might not be jumping in, but they're standing on the sidelines, and they are listening, and they're admiring the apostles for what they're doing. And it says, the people who are the rest of them held them in high esteem. Verse 14. By the way, I think I set a single record for the most slides ever in a sermon at Hagmanite Church. But anyway, (laughs) verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And what's the result of everything that's happening? The result is more faith. Believers were added to the Lord, and it's clear by reading this that their healing ministry is drawing attention to their message. And it's an interesting note that Luke makes sure his first century readers understand that salvation that Jesus offers is not just for men. That he wants to make sure that people understand that there's men and women, and he wants the readers to understand that they're both becoming believers. Back in chapter 4, verse 4, it says that the crowd of the men came to about 5,000. After these events, we have no idea how many followers there are. They think they must have lost count. Luke says more than ever believers were added. So we really don't know how many people there are now. But it sounds like this thing is really starting to snowball on them. Verse 15. And so that they carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. So they have people carrying people out into the street so that Peter's shadow might fall on them. So what's going on? Well, Luke is singling out Peter as the main driver for most of these healings. And Peter is also the focus of the people as well. We can see that by reading this passage. And these people are laying people, sick people, crippled people, lame, blind, leprous, possessed people in the street so that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passes by. Did you notice that in the passage, it does not say that Peter's shadow is healing them? 
It says at least his shadow might fall on some of them. It does not say on some of them so that they were healed. It says his shadow might fall on some of them. Shadows in the ancient world were a bit of a mystery. Some believed that someone's shadow falling on you could either benefit you or harm you, depending on whose shadow it was. So this tradition could likely be why people are doing this. Now, while there's some debate about this passage, it doesn't really matter if Peter's shadow is healing people or not. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. That can be debated. But I don't think that is Luke's point he's making in this statement. So what's Luke saying? Well, let's take a step back and take a look at what's happening here. What kind of miracles are these guys doing? How many miracles are they doing? Think about it. People are willing to drag sick family members to town and just lay them in the road and hope that Peter comes by. So I start to roll this stuff around in my head and I start to wonder, are they dragging these people around numerous times a day? Think about it. The sun moves across the sky during the day, so the way the shadows cast would change during the day. Oh, it's one o'clock. I gotta drag dad over to the corner, and I can leave him there till three, and then I gotta come back, and then I'll drag him down the street. Are they guessing which side of the street that Peter's gonna be on? What direction he's going, if he's coming or going? My questions are endless. But what I want you to imagine is what's happening. Think about the power of the Holy Spirit being displayed here. It must have been something else. And when I was researching this, I couldn't help but wish that Luke would have gone into a little more detail explaining exactly what's going on here. It must have been crazy. God has decided that now is the time to build his one church. God is using these miracles to bring glory to God and to build his kingdom, to show his power through the name of Jesus, and he's doing it through these 12 men, these men from Galilee. And as the men from the Sanhedrin said in chapter 4, they perceived them to be uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. And remember when they said this, then Peter and John had only healed one guy. What would they say now? And signs and wonders are regularly done among the people at the hands of the apostles. I have a couple other passages from Luke and John to help us give us a little bit fuller picture of what's going on here. This passage in Luke 4, Luke is describing a situation where, where Jesus is healing. Verse 40, and now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. The next passage is from John 14, and here Jesus is talking to the 12. 10 to 14, do not believe that I am the Father, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. And the Father may be glorified in the Son, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. When Jesus says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, he's talking to the 12 about what they're going to do, not to us. We're not the 12. Jesus is teaching the 12 about his ministry, which included healing. 
But it's not, the heal, it's not just a healing ministry, is it? With Jesus, it's always about the word. It's always about the kingdom and believing in Jesus and about repentance and salvation. Let's go back. This is a part of this. But in verse 11, Jesus says, Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or believe on account of the works. Again, he's speaking to the 12 and he says, You can believe in me because of what I've taught you, the word, or you can believe on the account of the works that you've seen. You see, the works give power to the word, but the word is what brings you life, not the healing. You can get the healing, but without salvation, eventually you're still going to die. Lazarus found that out. Life is only found in Jesus Christ. Now let's take a step back again to chapter 4. Peter and John have been arrested and they've been tried in front of the Sanhedrin and they end up being released after being told specifically not to speak in the name of Jesus and they run back to their friends and they pray together. Acts 4, 29 and 30. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word in boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through, this, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So what do they pray for first? To preach the word in boldness, right? And then what do they pray for? For God to heal and for signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. They've learned that it's always about the word. The healing and the signs and wonders give power and authority to the word, but it's always about the word. Verse 16. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Sounds a lot like what they were, when they were talking about Jesus in Luke 40. Describing the healings Jesus performed, they were all healed. So preach the word boldly. People are healed. Outsiders are impressed. People believe. Repeat. That's the recipe for the apostles. As what we can see from this text, they have the attention of the people in the temple courts, and they have people coming from towns around Jerusalem to see for themselves this healing that's happening, and then they hear about Jesus and about through the spoken word, and they're speaking boldly. They have this thing rolling. Verse 17 and 18. But the high priest rose up, And all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So what happens next? You're going to have to come back next week and find out. This passage we went through today in Acts 5, 12 to 16, is the turning point in the book of Acts. Right after this, the people in power at the temple start to realize what what a problem this new church is becoming, and they realize that killing Jesus did not get rid of his followers. There will be more arrests, there will be more beatings, soon they'll arrest Stephen and stone him to death, and the real persecution of the apostles in this new community begins. And all this is coming their way, and still they meet in the temple, the very place that the Sadducees are in charge of. Talk about boldness. This passage today gives us a picture of the divine power of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles. And there are still some who are willing or weary about jumping in with both feet. Maybe it's the prospect of being arrested by the Sadducees. Maybe it's that some church members dropped dead a few days ago that might have something to do with it. But no matter the obstacles, the apostles continue their work to heal and help people in need. And as they do their work, they gain the respect of the people, and this adventure for this new church community has just begun. So that's the passage, and school's out, and I 
That's my teaching portion, and I guess now we have some time for church. So what can we learn from this passage, and how can we apply it for us in this time? We should do this anytime we read the Bible. When we look at this passage today and ask ourselves, is this passage descriptive, or is it prescriptive? Does this passage describe what is happening to the apostles in this situation, or is it prescribing an enforceable rule for our life or a method of how we should live our lives? This passage is descriptive, right? It's describing what's happening to the apostles in this moment. If it, it is not prescriptive, but if it was, we should be able to translate it very, very loosely, like, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people in the hands of Chad. And they were all together in Hague Mennonite Church. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women were coming to Hague Mennonite Church, so that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them out on cots and mats, and as Chad was walking home for lunch, that at least Chad's shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from Rostron and Laird and Ozer, bringing sick and afflicted of unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Don't send letters or emails to Chad. I'm just being silly, of course. But I think you kind of get my point. When we look at this passage and what's happening to the apostles, it's really, hard a fi- way, it's really hard to find a way to fit this into our everyday lives. We're not healing people regularly. We're not meeting at the church every day, all day. I don't think we have people who are scared to join us. We're not adding multitudes to our numbers daily. Chad does not have people lying in the streets hoping his shadow passes over by or on them as he goes home for lunch. Although now with that sweet minivan, I guess you never know. <laughs> but let's remember, we are not starting the one church. One and only church God's plan. There's no plan B. God is using the apostles to build his church. Jesus spent three years training them for this. God is using these incredible miracles for a purpose to bring attention to his teaching. So again, what can we take from this passage? What can we use at Hagman and a church? What in this passage gives us hope for our future? How can this encourage us? Well, I thought about this for two days. I had my text or my teaching portion done, and for two days I stared at this passage and thought about this. And I kept asking, what in this text can I use to encourage people? And I kept coming back to John 15. And I would go, no, that's not going to work. I talk to myself a lot. And then my mind would go back, and I'd start thinking about this again, and and uh, I'd always end up back at John 15, and I'd look at the puzzle pieces and seeing how they would all fit together and how I could make that work. But I kept going, no, I don't think that's going to work. And then I'd go back to John 15. So I said to myself, okay, stupid, start typing or you're never going to get this done. So here goes. John 15, 1 to 8. I am the vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will become even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers, and such branches are picked up, 
thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. When Jesus said these words to the twelve, I wonder if they understood at the time. Think about it. Jesus has already told them that he's going to die. How does this teaching make any sense? How do they remain in him if Jesus is physically not there with them? But then I looked at Jesus' teachings, as they're recorded in John, just before and after this passage, and, and they are in this order, and this is how they're labeled in the ESV. I am the way. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. I am the vine. Hatred of this world and the work of the Holy Spirit. These five teachings may not have made a lot of sense to them at the time, but in this moment that they're in right now, I'm sure it's like a gong ringing in their ears. Think about what they've gone through in the first four books of Acts. These five teachings are all so important, and if we look at our passage from today, they have all five of them going on. They're preaching that Jesus is the way. They have received the Holy Spirit, so now they understand after Jesus' death, they now, and now they've been arrested for the second time, so they understand the hatred of this world, and they are smack dab in the middle of seeing the work of the Holy Spirit. They have front row seats. But the one that kept coming back, I kept coming back to was the middle one, the I am the vine, and the word remain. Eight times he tells them, Remain, 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 remain. And if you look at this passage, after Jesus' arrest, you would say, they're not going to make it. There's no way. Jesus gets arrested, they all scatter, they all run off, they all abandon Jesus. The word remain is not in their vocabulary, other than maybe remaining on the path as they run out of town. But they had no idea how powerful the Holy Spirit would be. No idea. Would they remain? That's the question. And today in the story, we get our answer. Yes, they would remain. Just imagine what they would have missed out on if they hadn't, if they would have run away and never come back. In fact, when they were first arrested and they faced the men that killed Jesus, when they were released, they could have packed their bags, taken what the church had collected, and just run away. But again, what would they have missed out on? And this is why Jesus told them eight times, guys, you need to remain in me. This is all going to be worth it. I'm going to be with you through all of it. You're going to see my plan through. You're going to see my glory and my power and my majesty here on earth. And here they are. They are in the middle of it. They are right in the middle of the will of God. And it must have been amazing and terrifying all at the same time. The other reason they remained, and this is something that's easy to overlook with everything that's going on, is for three years, Jesus lived in community with them. They lived, ate, traveled together. They were a community. They didn't know it then, but Jesus was installing, instilling in them this sense of community. They were figuring out what it was like to live in this type of community. They were with people from different backgrounds. People that had different jobs. People had different social status. People that had different political views. But together, Jesus formed this community the starter kit for the church community that we know today. Okay, okay, good for them. What does that have to do with me? My lunch is getting cold. We're going through a hard time now. 
COVID's been hard for everyone, for all of us. We all have a COVID story. We all have a struggle. We as a church kept having, keep having our rules changed on us from closed to partially open to open a little more to, oh, that's too much. You need to dial it back a little bit. And that's hard. It's hard for Chad. It's hard for all of us. It's hard to see or hear about families that talk about doing church at home, about not coming back to church, not wanting to be part of this community. That's hard. People in the church are struggling. They're hurting. Some are struggling financially, some emotionally, some mentally. Some are struggling with loneliness. But we're all struggling through this in some way. And for those of you who are hurting today, and for those who are struggling today, I found a word of hope for you this morning. Remain. Don't give up, or maybe a better way to put it is don't give in. Remain in Jesus, and he will remain in you. This part of the passage is prescriptive. This is a rule for our lives. And just like Jesus telling them eight times, he's telling us, and he's, he's saying the same thing to us. Guys, you need to remain in me. This is all going to be worth it. I'm gonna, we're going to be through this, get through this together. You need to see my plan through, and you'll see my power and my glory and my majesty here on earth. You see, we here at Hagman Night Church are a community of Christ. We are his church. We are part of his one church, the same one church that Peter and the apostles were building. And just like the apostles, as Christians, we need this community to thrive. We at Hagman and a church need this community to thrive. The Christian life was not meant to be done on our own. And when we read the stories of Acts, what really stands out to me is this community that Jesus built through them. We read about people hearing the message, believing in the message, believing in Jesus, repenting, being baptized, joining this new way, joining this community. This is not believe in Jesus, go live your same life you've been living. Jesus, thanks for my ticket. Now back to my regular schedule programming. That's not how it works. It's not add a little Jesus to your same old tired life. Believing in Jesus and following Jesus are not the same thing. You may or may not know that some of us have been going through the sanctuary course on Thursday nights. And this is a series about mental health that looks at what is the church's role in people's mental health healing journey. And what they come back to all the time is community. What does the church have to offer hurting people? Community. We all need this community that we call church to live a healthy, productive Christian life. We need each other to share meals with, to find friendship, to be able to walk alongside each other in our struggles, to find someone who will listen to us. We need to pray together and for each other. We need to care for each other. So today, to everyone who's struggling, don't give up. Choose to remain in Christ. Choose to stay plugged into his community. That is how the church was designed to be done in community. We love that you join us for Sunday mornings live or online, but I want you to consider this your official invitation. We would love to invite you to be part of our community. We've got youth group, men's and women's Bible studies, there's a young adults group, and we're going to start our small groups again when we can, but we would love for you to join us. Because church is not just a Sunday morning thing, it's a life thing. And we would love to see 
how we, as a church, can help you get plugged into this community and we can do life together. Shall we pray? God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the revealing of your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study it. There are countries where people don't have that opportunity, don't have Bibles. They don't have an understanding. They still believe in you. We pray, Lord, that we would continue as a church to teach, to teach your word, to to continue to proclaim it boldly and proudly, and that we would not stumble. And we pray for your continued blessing upon us as we do this. And we pray for, for the congregation and our community, Lord. We pray that you would continue to help us as a church build this community the way you want it to be built, Lord. And we pray that, that the people who are watching and the people that are on the outside of that community understand that this is what they're missing. This is what they're longing for. This is what they don't have in their lives. And Lord, as Christians, we can only be this community for them if we love them and we help them and they see our love in action through the things that we do, through them, to them. And we pray, Lord, that you would just help guide us in this, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Hague Mennonite Church Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to our website HagueMennoniteChurch.ca. Until the next time. Thank you.